to be famous, certainly in the Bible, you had to have a strange name. But um, I say that because we were talking earlier on about um, the readings through Nehemiah. I know many people have volunteered to read Sunday by Sunday. So I want to begin by just saying to you, it's not a competition. And however you think the word's pronounced, that's how it is. Okay? Because there's no given way of doing it. And as we go through this um, book, this, uh, what I find anyway, really exciting story, we will find all kinds of strange um, names, leastways strange, uh, strange to us. And um, with the exception of all age uh, services, um, or whatever we call them, uh, there are 15 Sundays where we'll be looking at the book of Nehemiah. And uh, each uh, preacher that uh, comes to visit will be asked to preach on a specific uh, part as shown in that, um, that plan. This book is really um, interesting, first of all, because it's a story. Or perhaps I should say, first of all, because it's found in the Bible. It's found in God's Word, and we believe that what we read there is from God and is for our, uh, uh, t- to help us to grow in our, in our faith. So that's the first reason. But second, it's quite a good story. There's um, uh, not simply uh, about rebuilding walls, but there's about how we deal with, uh, with poverty and in- inequality. There's revival. There's intrigue and plots. Um, so I, I find it exciting. And I hope you will too. And I hope that from it, as we go through these weeks, we will, each one of us, uh, learn something. We'll not simply learn facts, but we'll, we'll be built up uh, in our, our faith and in courage, individually and as a church. So, what I thought to do first of all this morning, as a kind of first part of our uh, um, Nehemiah in chapter 1 is to introduce the book and uh, to see where it fits into everything. Uh, Nehemiah is um, the last but one of the history books. 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, no, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Those are the history books. They tell the history of the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt and they record uh, what happens. Alongside those history books, there are the writings of the various prophets. And the bit I always get stuck with is what prophet fits with which king and so on. Um, In Ezra chapter 1, it tells us that the Persian king Cyrus of that time made a declaration which gave permission to the Jews living in Babylon to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Fifty years earlier, Jerusalem had been destroyed and its people, or most of its people, only the really poor and insignificant were left behind, but most of its people were taken off into captivity to Babylon. That was Nebuchadnezzar. Remember that? Daniel? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and so on. That's all that. 
where we are now is when these people return. I thought a little chart might help. I thought a little chart might help. Here we are. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how much of that you can see and whether I've got my colour contrast right. But I thought it was a good idea. What I tried to do is show the, the dates, right, BC. Then show kind of what was going on. And then show the different uh, books that um, covered those periods. And the uh, various uh, kings of the time. I mean, if... I'm sure some people are much more into the history of this age than I am, but it really is quite fascinating. So you see, um, if this thing works, it's cheap from Lidl, so I'm not sure. Oh, they are. Right? So we begin here, 537 BC or thereabouts. That was um, the declaration of um, uh, uh, King uh, Cyrus that uh, the... uh, Jewish people could return to Jerusalem. And they returned with Ezra. And Ezra's uh, prophecy covers that period from 537 to 456. And lots of things went on. uh, Rebuilding the temple. And if you read the book of Ezra, you'll find there were other things. I put Ezra's reforms there. That's quite significant. And in the middle of it all is the story of Esther. And people wonder, why is Esther in the Bible? It never mentions God in that book. But the reason is that, because it's a vital part of God's dealings with his people. It comes right in the middle of there. And then sometime later, 445 thereabouts, we get what we're looking at today, Nehemiah chapter 1. This is where Nehemiah fits in. And he returns to Jerusalem as we'll see as we go through the book, to rebuild the walls and much more. So that's the book of Nehemiah. You'll see here that during the time of Ezra and rebuilding of the temple, there were two other lovely names. They roll off the tongue, Haggai and Zechariah. Now Haggai is a brilliant book, two chapters, I think. You can read it in an evening. And as you read it, you'll find some phrases. You think, oh, I knew that phrase, and that's where it comes from. But you perhaps didn't realize that. And Malachi, that's the very last book in the Bible, the last prophecy, comes right at the end here. And actually, from 432 onwards, the Bible is silent. There is no Bible, no biblical history. There is, of course, history. We have the, um, the, uh, the Greeks, Alexander the Great and all that, uh, the um, Egyptians for a while, and the, finally, the Romans and... Uh, that they fit after there until we, uh, when we get into Matthew and the, and the, and the, and the Lord coming. Because he, he comes into a country that is a Roman province, essentially. So there's a bit of history. I saw if, now that may have bored some of you, I, I don't know. But I found that I wasn't going to really understand the book of Nehemiah if I didn't know where it fitted into the great scheme of things. And when you do something like that, and you know, there are lots of um, Bible encyclopedias, encyclopedias, all kinds of resources. You can go online and Google. Google Bible timelines. Brilliant. You get all kinds of um, uh, information. And it really helped, or it helped me to put the thing in context and to realize 
that, you know, God never let his people go. He never lets us go. In all of this, even when they were in uh, captivity, um, they, uh, uh, God was there um, working his plans and purposes out. So that's um, something of an introduction. And today, as the beginning of studying the book, we're going to look at chapter 1 and see something of the character of the author of the book of Nehemiah, who was Nehemiah, because it is actually an autobiography. Um, and it's written rather like uh, that, as, as, as we'll see. I mustn't say too much, because I may be pinching things from the preachers that have, have yet to come. Now Brad's going to come and read to us Nehemiah chapter 1. Okay, let's share this together then. Nehemiah's prayer. The words of Nehemiah, son of, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins, we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Thanks be to God for his word. Thank you, Brad. So there we have it, Nehemiah chapter 1. Not too many strange names there. 
think as we go through the uh, book, we will see that Nehemiah was undoubtedly God's man in the right place at the right time. And in fact, throughout the Bible, we see that, don't we? If we were to, to have looked in more detail at some of those, um, the period that I, I showed you on the chart there, you'll find there were people like uh, Ezra. And if you read Haggai, you'll find there was a man called Zerubbabel who were, um, had a big part in, in, in building the, uh, the temple and others and so on. So God, God has his person. God has his man, his, his woman in his time. As I was um, uh, sat down thinking about this, um, I tend to have a, a little notebook and I sort of scribble. And thankfully, it, to anybody else, it would be totally indecipherable. And then I tried to turn it into something that makes sense. And I scribbled down, cometh the hour, cometh the man. I thought, that's good. That sounds good. You're all impressed by that, aren't you? Cometh the hour, cometh the man. And then I thought, well, who said that? Is that in the Bible? Is it Shakespeare? Who said it? Well, a guy called Cliff Gladwin, who was a bowler on the 20th of December, 1948, in Durban, South Africa, said it. With two wickets standing and 12 runs required off the last three... I'll get this out. The last three remaining overs, he came into bat. He scored the winning run from a leg bye with the last ball of the match after the ball had struck him on the thigh. I do apologise to those of you like me who don't mind a bit of cricket, but that kind of was like Latin verse or something. Afterwards, in the dressing room, he proudly showed all comers the bruise from which cricket's most famous leg by was scored. I told you, cometh the hour, cometh the man, he said to Dudley North, the South African captain. This was reported in the Durban papers and can also be found on page 104 of Arthur Goldman's book, Try and Stump Me. No, he didn't. As to whether he created the phrase or he'd heard it before is anyone's guess. But I did a bit of searching and I really couldn't find where that phrase, that phrase came from. But it's so true, isn't it? It's true in our experience. It's true as we read the scriptures. God has his person. And here in this book, we see this man. This, of course, for us is ultimately seen... Uh, in the birth of our Saviour, when the Messiah came, when God's Son, Jesus, came and stepped into history to be our Saviour. And that's great for us, isn't it? We sung those lovely songs this morning, and that's what we were singing about, about how God, in time, sent his Son for us, his man, just at the right time. And he says that in Romans, I think, doesn't it? Just as the right time. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Just at the right time, God sent his man. And God has his man. The question, perhaps, and the challenge for us is, is it me? Are we holding out on God? Are you the man or woman for whom God has a particular task? So I thought as I... uh, went through this chapter 
that there were three things that stood out about Nehemiah particularly. And uh, I'd like us to just briefly look at those things this morning. I see here that he was humble. I see that he was a caring person and that he was a prayerful person. And I'll explain why. First of all, he was humble. We might ask the question, well, does it matter to be humble? Well, in Proverbs, it says that humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. If we truly somebody who is seeking to serve the Lord before anything else, then with that comes a sense of humility. I find that difficult to say because I have to confess to you that sometimes I'm not particularly humble. Well, sometimes I can do a Uriah and you might think I'm humble. But it's something I grapple with in some areas of life. But Nehemiah, what about him? Well, if I was writing this account of my life, if I was writing my autobiography, if you were writing your autobiography, what would you do? Well, first of all, you get somebody famous to write a forward bit, you see, say, to get you to read, read the book. Say, well, you know, somebody, get somebody famous to say, this is a really good book, you ought to read it. This chap's a really good chap. <laughs> and then, of course, you would uh, tell them who you are. So you'd uh, enumerate your titles and qualifications and so on. But you notice, as, as Brad read to us, we found out about Nehemiah when? At the beginning? No, at the end. I was cupbearer to the king. It doesn't begin, Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king. Now, that's a pretty uh, big deal in these days. Okay, you know, um, the, the king we're, we're, we're um, talking about was King Artaxerxes, uh, who was the uh, ruler of the Medes and the Persians and the ruler of a vast empire which stretched throughout what we can think of as the, uh, the, the, the Middle East. He had his eyes on Greece, but he never quite managed that. Um, and this guy had the power of life and death. One looked the wrong way, and that was it. So to be the cupbearer, somebody who had such an intimate uh, job in those days, you know, to make sure his wine was okay, and so on, was really quite something. Yet to Nehemiah, that was not what was important as he gives us what sometimes reads like quite a matter-of-fact account. So I see in, in that is uh, humility. The reason I think it says he was cupbearer to the king is kind of like it gives the plot away at the end. Um, because really... Um, his idea was to use that as an opportunity to plead the case for Jerusalem, as you see later on. In Peter, we read, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So humility is uh, a requirement if we were to um, look at Philippians chapter 2, a well-known 
passage in the Bible, isn't it? You know, where Paul speaks of Christ's humility and says that that's the example that we should follow. That's how we should try to be. The one who, although he was God, didn't grasp after that, but rather gave all that up that he might be our saviour. True humility is a rare and a precious thing. To serve others selflessly without looking for reward or even recognition, well, that pleases God and enhances the life of those whom we serve and our own life. But it's by no means an easy thing to do. And sometimes the difficulties of being the preacher is that you are really preaching to yourself more than to anyone else. But I do believe that it matters more to God who we are rather than what we are. It matters more to him our character than our status or the job we have or the, uh, even the service uh, that, uh, that we offer. It's that, it's our character, it's the person we are that makes us fit to serve God. And in the life of um, this man, Nehemiah, you see that played out, that he was fit to serve God. He was fit to serve the, the people of Israel, to take a, a great responsibility. Why? Because he had letters after his name, because he was um, a renowned builder, because he was a recognized leader of men. No, because he was a man of God, because his character was such that uh, God could use him. Us, me, our characters, our personalities often get in the way of God using us. We have to really be nothing so that he can make us something. So, humility, a subject in itself, but the clock is moving around. So, Nehemiah was a caring man. You'll notice in this passage that when he meets with his brother and others, there's no, I'm sure there was, uh, but we don't, it's not recorded for us. There's no idle chatter. He really wants to know what's going on in Jerusalem. This really concerns him. The plight, the plight of his fellow uh, Israelites really matters to him. Uh, this week, I think it was this week, um, Jill and I sat down and watched a documentary which had the encouraging title, Kill the Christians. I don't know, maybe some of you watched it, but it's about the plight of um, the Christian church in places like Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, uh, even uh, in Israel was, was mentioned. That the, the reporter kind of went from place to place and contrasted the state of the Christian church in these different places. Now, these people don't necessarily perhaps worship in the same way as we do. You know, they showed um, some of the sort of more orthodoxy, Coptic-y type churches, you know, where they swing the incense and uh, the guy at the front, you know, is splendidly regaled and all that. But there's still people who love the Lord as we do. And they are having a really tough time. And um, uh, the, the bishop was somewhere, I think it was in Iraq or somewhere like that, was saying, well, actually, the Christian church isn't going to exist here in the future. He didn't see a future for it. 
That's sad, isn't it? But we sat and we watched it. We were cosy, you know. It, uh, it may have been a bit chilly, but the central heating was on. We were sat on a comfy settee, you know. Did it touch us? Did it drive us to our knees? It's easy, isn't it, in this day and age to be unmoved because the truth is the contrasts are so great and yet so commonplace that they don't touch us. But Nehemiah, when he was told of the plight of the uh, Israelites in Jerusalem, what was his response? It was to weep. It was to fast. It was to pray day and night. It wasn't simply an emotive response, but he felt the need to do something uh, positive and concrete, to fast and to pray continually. There was a genuine grief at the plight of others, although they were a long way away, and he himself uh, was situated in the palace at uh, Susa, living undoubtedly in comparative luxury. Really, you know, quite comfortable and so on. It's easy for us, isn't it, to be careless. I think that's probably the word of the needs around us, the needs of those near at hand and the needs of those in the war-torn wider world. What did this say to me as I uh, studied this? Perhaps there was a challenge there. A challenge about prayer, a challenge about the care and concern and the action we take uh, uh, about the things that we see and, in, uh, and encounter in the world around. Humble and caring and prayerful. As the story of Nehemiah progresses, you will see a man of action and a man of wisdom but you'll also see a man of prayer. As I read through the chapters, I spotted the points of which Nehemiah offered up a prayer. Seven times I counted. They were short prayers. But it just showed that he was simply a man of prayer. He was a prayerful man. And we see in these uh, verses that uh, we have read this uh, This prayer that he prayed, it takes up most of the chapter, it's the most important thing. It's his pleading with God on behalf of others. He begins by worshipping, by acknowledging God. He speaks of his greatness and his love. There's similarities here, aren't there, with the prayer that we refer to as the Lord's Prayer, as that's how it begins, to give God his place, to acknowledge him as the centre of everything, the ruler of heaven and of earth, uh, the one in whom everything exists and subsists, the one to whom we turn. And then he turns to confession. And this, again, is a difficult subject, isn't it? Our lives are open to God. There's no hiding place there. 
But there's plenty of hiding places amongst ourselves, aren't there? And I, I feel that really uh, keenly. But we do, don't we, need to be honest with God. And then we have this plea for the people of uh, Jerusalem. And you notice it is a plea. You ask God to remember. Again, it's interesting to go through this um, book and see how many times Nehemiah in his prayer says to God, remember this, remember me, remember. As he's reminding God, but he's not making any demands on God. It's a humble prayer. It's a a prayer that's really essentially a plea. And it challenges me as to how often we are, I am typified by perhaps a, a prayer that really is motivated by a genuine and deep concern for others and a, a prayer that acknowledges my own uh, powerlessness and, and God's uh, power and love and so on. And then he concludes because he gets to the heart of the matter. And this is what I intimated earlier on. You see, day after day, Nehemiah's job entailed being in the presence of the king. In earthly terms, a great and powerful man. And yet, did you notice? When the prayer began, O Lord God of heaven. That's the person who Nehemiah was really serving. That's the person to whom Nehemiah in his heart really bowed down, despite the fact that in life he had to bow down to someone else. And what does he say at the end of the prayer? Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Just another man. But Nehemiah knew that the key to what he could do for God was success with this man, this king. So his prayer had a purpose. But sometimes, and I'm sure we all uh, realize this, sometimes in our prayers, we're just quick to tell God what we want and what we need. Yeah, that's the purpose of our prayer. But prayer is a kind of an, an exercise as well. It's an act of worship. It's an act of contrition. It's an act of recognition of who our God is and of where we, where we stand, where we are. I think of that um, parable that the Lord told of the Pharisee and the publican. Do you remember that? The tax collector. Sorry, I get back to the old authorised version. And you know how the, uh, the Pharisee stood there and he said, Oh Lord, I thank you, I'm not like this man. You've made me something wonderful. 
And the poor tax collector, aware of all his sin, just is prostrate, beating his breast with such sorrow over the person he was. We all get it wrong, don't we? And we all make mistakes. And uh, there are times when we need to just come to that time of confession and recognition. But always in our prayers, you know, there's nothing we can demand of God. There's nothing we can bring to him of ourselves. There's nothing we can boast about, no matter how busy we've been for him. That isn't the relationship we have. And so, Nehemiah was a patient and persistent man in his prayer life. Now, a little bit of something that I discovered uh, in studying for this. The month of um, Kislev, it says here, in the 20th year, in our sort of calendar, that would be round about November, December. Now, I hope next week's preacher will f- forgive me as I stray into chapter 2. The month of Nisan, Nisan, in the second chapter, is probably April, May time, some five months later. Nehemiah was patient, but I believe that all that time he spent in prayer. He had a plan, a germ of an idea, and he, he took it to, to God. Now, I don't think that means that he kept on with the same prayer. There's a sense in which if we give something to God, we should be able to like, leave it with him. But that, that's not kind of the point, is it? The point is about being prayerful, about your character, my character, being a prayerful character, about in every aspect and moment of life, in a sense, being in prayer. Now, I could see the time as wisdom. So let's conclude by saying, if we've gained anything from the study of this chapter, if I've gained anything, let me be clear here, about the study of this chapter, is to be uncomfortable about my own complacency, to be challenged about... uh, whether I really care and I'm really concerned. To be challenged about my own character. Am I striving to be truly Christ-like? Or is that simply something I've heard from a a preacher? And what about prayer? For me, I confess to you, there's a weakness. And do I need to strive to perhaps be a more prayerful person? As a church, we set up one day a month aside, don't we? Prayer Monday where, we, where we, uh, uh, we pray where in, you know, in different situations. I don't see you pray, you don't see me. But perhaps next time we come to the prayer Monday, we might bring this to mind.